0: ghoulish gibbons. Welcome back to Puzzle Monkey. Well, it looks like we're nearing the end of lockdown. Round three may finally be coming to an end. I'm really interested to see how people actually react. You know, we feel like we've been in this period of hibernation and now things are apparently going to open up in some way or another. I think everyone is going to go a little bit mental Or perhaps it's just going to stay the same. Perhaps we're not going to go rushing back to pubs or to shopping centers. I'm sure some people will, but maybe this fear that the COVID crisis has created is just going to permeate into our normal way of being. Maybe this is our new normal. I absolutely hate that term, as I'm sure everyone does. And I'm not going to talk about it anymore because today I'm going to take a little bit of a different approach than normal. I'm going to spice things up a little bit. I was speaking to a family member last week, and they were being really kind and praising what I was talking about in the previous episode, but they did say, Christ, it was a bit dark. Can we have something a bit more uplifting, or at least something that would actually make us giggle a small amount? And I was like, fair enough, let's give it a lash. So what I'm going to do today is look at three different news stories, three quite niche news stories in the remit of ecology, politics, and I guess social life. A muse on why I think they're quite crucial to understand the moment we find ourselves in. I'm going to talk about how a cat surfing a train in London may show us how to topple the dreaded capitalist system, man. How sharks, like Chinese food couriers, are setting themselves alight. And how humans are shaping the evolution of marsupials in Australia. What a varied menu. Let's get some. So last week in London, a tabby cat got on the top of a high-speed train in London, Euston, that was bound for the north. And I got up there about half an hour before the train was due to set off. And then a Mexican standoff ensued. The Avanti West Coast workers were trying to get it off. They were trying all these different means. They were trying to offer it treats, I presume. And the cat was just, well, being a cat. It was like, nah, you sound. I'm going to sit up here, have a chill. Maybe, you know, read the periodicals. And they couldn't get the cat off for like two and a half hours. (laughs) I love this. You've got people traveling during coronavirus crisis, trying to get back up to the north to see their families. And the cat's like, you know what? It's more important that I take this time to work on myself, to take this time for self-care than it is for you to see your family. So just chill out and quit your whining. Anyway, this crisis was resolved when a bin was pulled up beside the carriage. And then the cat was like, all right. It's time for me to go. Ta-ra. And it just sauntered off with such class and poise, such respect to that puss. Now, call me crazy, but I think there's more to this story than meets the eye. I think this feline affair shows us that the system which is the most overused buzzword in undergraduate social sciences ever. But let's say that it refers to uh, an interconnected system of power and dominance that exerts itself on a general populace through processes such as manufactured consent. Christ, I'm such an undergraduate student. Terrifying. Anyway, I think this cat surfing the train shows us that the system, man, is nowhere near as monolithic or impervious to change or damage as we've been taught. I mean, think about it. One feline operative, and we don't know if it was working on its own, maybe it was supported by another crew of kittens or something, but one cat basically shut down one terminal. Is that what it's called in a train station? Terminal? Platform. Jesus Christ, it's one of those days. A cat shut down an entire platform for two and a half hours. And it's a cat. And this is why I think, and this is a bit of a hot take, so please humor me here, that this cat is a quadrupedal manifestation of Mario Savio. And Mario was a US radical. He was famous as a leader of the free speech movement at Berkeley in the 1960s. Mario, like many other students, spent the summer of 1964 down in Mississippi, principally to register black sharecroppers to vote during the Freedom Summer. And when he and his peers came back to Berkeley, they started demonstrating for free speech on college campuses to protect and even expand the civil rights movement. It's quite interesting to think of free speech being expanded upon American colleges, whereas at the moment it seems to be under fire. Anyway, on this issue of free speech, Savio gave his very famous proclamation that there's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Pretty powerful speech, don't you think? You can see here a lot of inspiration being taken from the Marxist ideals of the proletariat, basically taking over the means of production through violence or self-sacrifice if necessary. And a lot of these ideas, although there's no real evidence for this, but in my mind at least match on quite well to the ideas of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. This idea of being a cog in the machine. And this machine, this idea of technology being the enemy of human liberation, of human spirit. Domestic US terrorists aside, I think that the cat on top of the train, and let's give him a name, Vladimir. I think what Vlad represents is exactly what Mario is talking about, is that if you do throw your body... Onto the cogs and the gears of the system, then it does actually have a disruptive force. It does have some impact. It's not just an act of, you know, symbolic protest, because by God, there is a lot of symbolic protesting going on at the moment. If you casually flick through Facebook or Instagram, it seems that every Tom, Dick and Harold is telling us how to change our behaviour to limit the impact we have on Mother Nature and how, through purchasing power, we can topple the system. For some, it's about buying a new t-shirt that's made from hemp or some other biodegradable material. Or maybe it's buying a bamboo toothbrush. If you go onto Instagram, lads, there are literally thousands of these dudes these influencers influencing you to buy certain things that they're telling you are going to save the world. And this kind of, I guess, comes back to the issue of ethical consumerism we talked about in the previous episode. And I have no doubt that these influencers are intelligent and they are well-meaning and they actually believe, rightly so, that replacing non-biodegradable materials with biodegradable materials will have a good impact. And I don't mean this as a slur, but they are also very good little capitalists because they invoke this idea that you need to purchase something new to solve an old problem. And if you look closely, this is very clearly imbued in the way in which these products are advertised. Because this new kind of, let's call it ecologically minded advertising still mobilizes the same means to manipulate how you feel about a product, but more about how you feel about yourself. Because advertising has always, and probably will always, prey upon your insecurity. You're not hot? Well, buy this product and you'll be sound. Women don't take you seriously? Purchase this vehicle. This swish watch made by blind Belgian nuns. This Swedish penis enlarger could be yours. As Noam Chomsky, God bless him, points out in his excellent documentary Requiem for an American Dream, when was the last time you saw an ad? which actually advertised the physical qualities of the product. That actually told you about what it's made of, how it's made, and why it makes it a good product. I mean, think about car ads. How many times have you seen an advertisement for a car that's like a fucking movie? You have this pickup truck jumping across the Grand Canyon or traversing the dunes of Mars. Not a moment is spent on telling you what this car could actually be used for. Who is the intended audience? Why should they buy this from a practical perspective? What benefits does it offer them? And maybe in a less exaggerated form, this is exactly what's happening with these ads for the biodegradable toothbrush. They prey upon the fear that you're not an environmental steward. You're part of the problem. You're driving the biospheric breakdown that we're seeing today. And crucially, people are going to find this out about you. They're going to come around to your gaff, maybe share a pizza with you. And, you know, they're going to stay over just because it's too far to go home. And you're going to go upstairs and brush your teeth. And they're going to find out that you, yes, you have a plastic toothbrush. And in the old days, the good old days, we'd have sent you to the bloody gulag for your sins. <laughs> I bet you listeners are like, who hurt this man? what trauma did he experience? But seriously, if you look at these ads for these products, don't they usually involve the archetypal image of the environmental steward, the bloke with the you know, flannel shirt and the windswept hair and that look of just pure assholeness? No, I'm joking, I'm just describing myself. Obviously you could be like this guy only if you buy the toothbrush, your teeth will shine with such delight. And no one will ever find out about that time that you didn't bring your bag for life to co-op when you bought those non-vegan sausages. You see, capitalism has this truly amazing and elastic capacity to expand itself into new avenues, into new frontiers, new nooks and crannies, and it just lives on. So buying this toothbrush, whilst it definitely is a beneficial thing to do, is just an example of the adaptivity of capitalism. And fair play to it. And the irony truly is that this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bambooji, the most sustainable tube. <laughs> Who am I kidding? No one's ever going to actually sponsor this shit. But how does this relate to Vlad? Let's go back to the cat on the top of the train. What he shows us is that a lazy protest upon the metabolisms and infrastructures of power is perhaps a much better way to topple the system than replacing all of our unbiodegradable junk with marginally more biodegradable junk. If we all took a book and sat atop the trains in our nearest train station, we'd have a hell of a lot more impact than buying the latest product that illustrates little more than our green virtue. And you'll say, Gusto, didn't Extinction Rebellion try sitting on the roofs of trains? Yeah, they did. And the police and public were a lot more brutal with them than they were with our kid, Vlad. But they had a huge impact, don't forget that. They pretty much brought London, or at least some parts of it, to a standstill. For a precious moment, they illustrated that the system is far more delicate and vulnerable than we all seem to believe it is. It's held together by a story, a veneer that's enforced through control and the threat of punishment. For a moment, this story seemed to be maybe false, or it was challenged. And that's why people, not just politicians, but the average person, was so angry to see that their train had been delayed, they weren't going to get to work. And these are understandable issues, because the story didn't make sense. And maybe what we should learn, and maybe what Extinction Rebellion should learn from the work of Vlad is that protesters just need to chill out. You know, there was a lot of issues that people were shouting at the Extinction Rebellion for being an exclusionary force of predominantly middle-class, white, privileged individuals. And now maybe what we should do is just put some shades on, crack out the shorts, get some shut-eye on top of the trains instead of shouting so much. Maybe that would be more radical than sitting there and being slightly self-righteous. It would confuse the fuck out of the police and probably everyone else as well. And perhaps confusion is the way to change the story that guides how the system operates and guides how the system operates us. Now, on to something completely different. Why the hell are we so afraid of sharks? Now, obviously, Jaws has had a huge influence on this fear. And alongside this, Shark Week, I think, has a lot to answer for. For those unaware, Shark Week is, funnily enough, a week of shark based programming on the Discovery Channel. And at the start, it was actually devoted to conservation efforts and correcting misconceptions and harming stereotypes about sharks. But now, in typical fashion, it's become Hollywoodized. And now you have mockumentaries like. Megalodon, the monster shark lives, shark of darkness, wrath of submarine, monster hammerhead, and who could forget that classic, lair of the mega shark. Now, without spoiling these Oscar worthy pieces of work, they were all obviously over the top and verging on the kind of comedic, but nonetheless, I think it put the fear of God into people. It was this kind of idea that if you ever dip a to toe in any body of water, whether it be a bathtub or the Atlantic, some shark's going to come and get you. And I'm not sure if Finding Nemo did anyone any favours here. And sadly, I haven't actually seen the film recently, but I remember you have these three Australian sharks that Nemo and Dory encounter, and they're the kind of reformed type. Fish are friends, not food. That was the ideology, wasn't it? And like the main character, the viewer starts to question whether maybe they've been unfair in their characterization of sharks. Maybe they've been xenophobic about these misunderstood beauties. And then just like that, they get a whiff of blood and they confirm all of the stereotypes of this mindless, bloodthirsty creature. And we come to the conclusion that we were right to characterize these fish. So we were right to see them as the horrors from the depths. Now, I'm no Roger Ebert. I'm not going to give you an in-depth analysis of the film. All I want to show is that there are lots of different points in our culture that pass on this idea that sharks are a threat and cannot really be trusted. And that this stereotype as such has transferred into the way in which we treat these creatures. Because catalyzed by this fear as well as the proliferation of huge nets used by industrial and often illegal fishing vessels, as well as the Chinese love affair with their fins, sharks have been experiencing an unprecedented decline recently. We're talking a 71% decline over half a century. We're reaching a tipping point where sharks may actually be in risk of extinction in the not-so-distant future, I mean, demand for shark fin soup alone is supposedly responsible for the death of 73 million sharks every single year. And these creatures, despite being portrayed as so terrifying, are also so important to marine ecosystems. They are apex predators, that's what Jaws did get right. But instead of making them look like they eat humans every day of the bloody week, they maintain the species below them in the food chain. They help remove the sick and the weak from the ecosystem and keep balance. They keep homeostasis with competitors. And all of this helps to ensure species diversity. And that's why sharks are seen as an indicator for ocean health itself. So what is actually being done to protect these apex predators and reverse this terrifying rate of extinction? Well, everything you would kind of expect, I guess. Striving towards the creation of more sustainable fisheries, greater research into shark behaviour, and greater international cooperation, to name but three. But here's the kicker. I think the sharks are going to save themselves. And this is because science is discovering more and more species of glow-in-the-dark sharks. There are some 540 shark species in the ocean and 57 of them produce light through bioluminescence. So that's more than 10% of sharks. Now, we don't know why they produce this light, but I think this makes them more relatable. (laughs) Uh, All right, maybe not more relatable, but less scary. Surely, maybe, now that I'm actually thinking about it, maybe not. You know, the idea of seeing a pulsating tiger shark or a great white lit up like a six-meter long lava lamp gliding towards you out of the darkness is potentially even more scary than a shark with an Australian accent. But listen, even if it doesn't make them seem any less scary, I think it does make them seem maybe more ethereal. And it kind of goes against the shark week or the Jaws interpretation of them as these ruthless, thoughtless, killing machines that lurk in the depths. The reason why I kind of say this is because I was obsessed with dinosaurs when I was younger. And I mean obsessed. I had dinosaur pyjamas. All right, that's the level in which we're talking about. But when I found out about new research that suggested that the majority of dinosaurs had feathers... They lost a great deal of their fear factor for me. I don't know why. I don't know why that the idea of a T-Rex with a beautiful degree of plumage is less intimidating, but honestly, it really is to me. Because when we learn novel things about species, it can serve to disrupt our pre-existing perception of them. Like when we learned that bees can communicate by dancing and wiggling their little wee bums, a lot of people were like, oh my God, These little bugs are actually really, really intelligent. They have some kind of degree of language, maybe. And I'm obviously not saying that just because we found out that some sharks like to glow in the dark, that this is going to change our perceptions of them. It's going to basically wipe the slate clean on our stereotypes. But I do think it could change our perspective. There's something magical about bioluminescence. And it's not something that you would perhaps associate with a shark And I think that kind of juxtaposition has the capacity to make us actually stop and think about how we view these creatures. It's obviously not going to stop the trade in shark fins, or directly stop the amount of shark bycatch that's happening in our fisheries. But, pardon the pun, I do think it could shine a light on the world of sharks that might just make us begin to question the programming we've received about them. This idea of the -the glow-in-the-dark shark and other bizarre adaptations is quite a good segue into the last story I want to talk about today. A story about what's called assisted evolution, which is where humans guide the evolution of other species on Earth. And this idea is increasingly becoming a practice within conservation, and it's seen as one of the only ways we can perhaps safeguard certain species from going extinct. A country that has been utilising assisted evolution within its conservation policies for a little bit of time now is Australia. And they're using it to try and protect declining numbers of native marsupials. See, the Brits, in our supreme wisdom, introduced a number of non-native animals, which have wreaked absolute havoc on the country's ecosystems. Two of the main critters introduced by us poms are cats and foxes. And populations of both have utterly exploded since their introduction. But why were they introduced in the first place? Do you remember that old tune back in the day that goes? I knew an old lady who swallowed a spider. It wiggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed a spider to catch the fly, but I don't know why she swallowed the fly. Perhaps she'll die. I'm always using the most beautiful prose on this podcast. But anyway, the lady in the song goes on to eat a load of other animals to solve her issues of inner infestation. I think she finishes up necking a horse at the end of the song, but you can check that in your own time. Anyway, the British approach to solving environmental problems they created kind of followed the same logic as the song. Because European rabbits were imported to Australia in 1859, and they multiplied and multiplied like rabbits are wont to do. And within a short period of time, the population numbered in the hundreds of millions. Now, this wasn't the only reason why cats and foxes were introduced, but I think they were seen as a tool to limit this monstrous infestation. But as we know, fighting fire with fire tends to create, you guessed it, more fire. Because there were millions of rabbits, the number of cats and foxes who hunted them also exploded into hyperabundance as they feasted on the rabbits and native mammals alike. To put this into perspective, it's estimated that there are about 6 million feral cats in Australia, and they alone kill some 800 million native animals every single year. And this is totally our fault. You know, we did bring them here. It's not as if the cats were going to somehow manage to get on the train like Vlad and end up in Australia. The outcome of all of this is that native marsupial species have perhaps suffered the most. Species like the lesser bilby and the desert bandicoot basically didn't really have enough time to evolve and adapt because these predators and competitors were introduced in such a short period of time. And for all intents and purposes, they've just been outcompeted. And some people would say, well, yeah, that's survival of the fittest. But what do we do? Just stand by and do nothing? Do nothing to try and solve an issue that we created? It's this kind of sentiment that has galvanized projects such as Arid Recovery in Australia. Now, they're focusing on two highly threatened marsupial species, the Greater Bilby and the Burrowing Betong. Don't you worry, I'll put pictures of both on the Instagram. In layman's terms, what the scientists have done is create two types of paddock to run behavioural tests on the marsupials. One paddock has just bilbies in it. Let's call this the placebo group. And the other paddock has bilbies in it, but the scientists have added a small number of cats. The hypothesis here is to put enough pressure on the marsupials in the shared paddock to produce behaviours or even evolutionary change that might just make them more resilient to the threat from cat and fox alike. I'm not sure about you, but this seems like a pretty high-stakes game for the poor bilbies. Anyway, in one experiment, there were five cats released into a fenced-off paddock with a few hundred greater bilbies in there. And basically, they were left with each other for two whole years. And after this first phase, the scientists caught some of the surviving bilbies, some of those that actually survived the onslaught from the cats. And then they mixed this population with some bilbies from the placebo group where there were no predators. And what they did was attach radio transmitters to all of their tails to trace them and place them in a new paddock with even more cats in it. And after 40 days, only a quarter of the bilbies that came from the predator free paddock were still alive. And interestingly, by comparison, two thirds of the bilbies that have been in a predator paddock had managed to avoid predation. And this suggests that bilbies that have actually been exposed to cats have better survival instincts. But the conundrum here is whether these skills were learned by the predator exposed bilbies or whether a selection process for bilbies with more captivating genes had been triggered? Now, the answer is not clear, but I think it does make a case for humans intervening in the behaviour of other creatures. But even though there's a case, does it mean that we should do it? If we accept the premise that, look, it's just no longer good enough protecting species from change, we have to create change ourselves... Does this mean that we just give up trying to stop climate change and other factors that are driving what is being termed the sixth great extinction event of planet Earth? Maybe we're beginning to realise we're locked into climate breakdown, whether we like it or not. Maybe scientists deep down know that waiting on the promises of the Paris Agreement are folly, and that we need to take matters into our own hands. And hey, perhaps assisted evolution is evidence that humans are actually taking a pragmatic, practical, and quite novel approach to conservation. Perhaps we have no other choice but to do this. I think there's an element of truth to all of these points. And also, this wouldn't actually be the first time that we've tinkered with the genetics of nature. Just look at our dogs, our golden retrievers, our livestock, and domesticated crop species – They're almost unrecognisable from the produce that evolves so-called naturally. But perhaps there is nothing unnatural about humans changing the biomes that we live in. After all, humans are animals. We are also natural whether we like to think of us in that way or not. Either way, for me, assisted evolution is evidence of the human desire, perhaps the deepest human desire, to play God to role-play as our creator. And after all, what could possibly go wrong playing God? And with that Promethean puzzle laid out, let's call it a day, I enjoy the circularity of this podcast starting and ending with cats. I think Vladimir would be proud. Maybe he'll be the mascot of the podcast from now on. As always guys, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this slightly different approach, maybe less intense or Christ, maybe more intense than what I usually do. Let me know. I'd be interested to get your take. As always, my friends, please follow the podcast on whatever streaming service you use. And if you're listening on an Apple device, it would mean the absolute world to me if you would write a little positive review of the podcast on the iTunes Store. This is basically the only real way the podcast can grow. So if you're feeling like a good Samaritan and you've enjoyed the kind of stuff I've been talking about, then that would be a real, real help. Aside from that, please share the podcast as widely as you would like. But most importantly, please look after yourself and please, please enjoy the sun if you have any. It's gone inside here, inevitably. Peace and love to all. Good luck. ta Oh, <music>